Well, we're starting a new series. Uh, If you've been around for a while, probably you've got a picture of the kind of pattern that we try to follow through. We look to try to do something fairly practical. We look to follow through on one of the books of the Bible, uh, and we look to look uh, at something a bit more thematic uh, through each year. And uh, between now and probably getting on towards Christmas, we're going to be looking at something which is um, central to the message of the Bible, the idea of Jesus ascended. I just want to read a few uh, words from Acts chapter 1, verse 7 to 9. Uh, He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight, hid him from their sight. So there's the moment, uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as the apostles, the writers of the New Testament are concerned, this was a historical event. Uh, We're not reading here some sort of um, uh, constructed, uh, idealistic thought we're reading about an event where a group of people were with Jesus, he took them up onto a mount, uh, and he spoke some words to them, and then he uh, left them miraculously. Uh, I, I don't know what your thoughts are. I, I, when I was younger, it was almost like this. Jesus was lifted up off the ground, and um, I remember when my dad was, was when I was I was going to say when my dad was young, it was when he was younger, Um, when I was young, uh, and I used to kick a football into the sky, and I tell you now, nobody could kick a football into the sky as high as dad. It it just went up and up, and it was just like this tiny, or it seemed to this little lad who was about this tall, that the ball would be so high up in the air, and then it had come uh, back down. I don't know whether that influenced my thinking about this event in the life of Jesus. I always had this idea of Jesus sort of disappearing up and up and up and up and up until he became this tiny little dot in the sky as if he was taken off with this some sort of uh, kind of cosmic jetpack that took him up into the sky. Uh, That's not what we see portrayed. We see a miraculous moment where on the mountain Jesus... uh, somehow was elevated from them and then disappeared from their sight. That's what we see. Uh, It's an extraordinary event. It was very, very public. I think that's incredible, actually. If you think about it, Jesus coming into the world was incredibly private. Jesus exiting the world was incredibly public. We read of an event in the Gospels where Jesus comes into the world, born as a human being to Mary in Bethlehem, and who was there? Who were the witnesses to that event? Joseph. And if we believe the pictures in the storybooks, some animals. There were no witnesses. Somebody has said silently, the Son of God uh, slipped into creation. What an, what an incredible moment where the incarnate God came into the world, and yet in terms of its visibility, it was hidden from sight. What we see as Jesus exits is an incredibly public moment. 
we see Jesus leaving the world in front of a great number of witnesses. In fact, so much so that these individuals uh, go on and give their lives confident in what they had seen on that day. Uh, With the exception of one of the apostles, obviously one of the disciples of Jesus, uh, was later on, uh, well, before Jesus died. He died himself, Judas we know. But the others went on to serve. uh, And with the exception of just one, Paul was added later on, he was uh, martyred. There was only John the Baptist, as far as we can see and as far as we understand, out of all of the apostles, there was only John the Baptist who died a natural death, probably in his 90s. All of the others, uh, all of the others died unnatural deaths. They were martyred. So John, not John the Baptist, sorry. Yeah, John the Baptist died even before Jesus. Thank you. Uh, John, uh, the disciple John, the young John, died in his 90s naturally. All of the others gave their lives. They were willing to sacrifice their lives because what they had seen on this occasion, they were confident in. That's really important for us as we enter into this journey into what we make of the ascension of Jesus. What do we make of it? The starting point is that it is a historic event. It's something which occurred in front of enough people for there to be witness to this event and before enough people who later on were so committed to what they had seen that they were willing to die for it. I think that's really important. And it's also interesting, the, the complete contrast, the exit of Jesus compared to the entrance of Jesus. The idea that somebody's going away is the focus of their message, in human terms, is quite bizarre. If you think about it, that the idea of somebody's message, we might talk about somebody's message sort of living on in some way, almost as though while they were here they had such an impact that what carried on afterwards made that life really quite significant. But it was what they did here that made all the rest of their impact relevant. What we're going to see as well is the the ascension tells us something quite different to that. What we see with regards to the ascension is that the work of Jesus is continuing. The impact of the message of Jesus is greater because of this event, which is remarkably different to what we would normally expect. In other words, this isn't um, some sort of, okay, what do we do now to get Jesus out of the world? It is absolutely central. It is essential. The ascension of Jesus and his ongoing work is essential to what we believe and what we have our hope in. So that's where we are. That's the kind of journey that we're going to be looking at. All of the reasons why the ascension of Jesus is so incredibly important and relevant for us today. Why it matters. 
But I want to take a step back because I want to go back and, and, and see something which I think is really quite important. Look at Luke, cha- Luke chapter 9 now. We've got this moment. seems very strange, actually, that we might consider this first. Verse 28. We've been talking about, previously we've, in this chapter, we've talk, been talking about the disciples coming to terms with who Jesus is. Jesus is having this incredible impact, an astounding impact on society at that time. He's the talk of the, of the area. He's the talk of the region. It's as though his message and, and what's going on and the things that are happening around his existence in the world, it's being talked about. So he would end up, uh, imagine the situation, there was no sort of, there's no telecommunications or written communication in quite the way. It was literally word of mouth, passed on from one to the other, to the other, to the other. Uh, And it was so dramatic, the impact that he was having, that as he went into towns, uh, there would already be these huge gatherings waiting for him to arrive because the message was getting to them that he was on his way and he was having this dramatic impact. There was a huge amount of speculation about who he was. Who is this person? He is so different. The things that he is doing is so remarkably different Who is he? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? So Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, well, who do do they say that I am? And there's all sorts of speculation. Some of the prophets from the past, John the Baptist, because he was already dead. John the Baptist, come back to life. All of these ideas, people, if you like, who in the past have had a massive impact on the Jewish nation, they're suggesting maybe Jesus is these people reincarnated in some incredible way. And then Jesus turns to them and said, well, what about you? I think it's a remarkably important question. What about you? Um, Maybe it's a question that we need to be confronted with. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you? Well, for Peter, his response was God's Messiah. And then Jesus from that went on to talk about, well, God's Messiah is here to do something. He's here to create the most uh, uh, pervasive, incredible, sustainable uh, kingdom. A kingdom which previously had been hoped for and yet hadn't been delivered. Jesus was coming to deliver a kingdom. And then right at the end of that kind of kingdom discussion, he says this, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on. Eight days later, always remember when you're reading the Bible, when you're reading particularly the Gospels, the Gospel writers always create the narrative of what's happening in a very, very thought-through way. Sometimes it appears as though it's just these thrown in little cameos of what's happening. Then he did this, and he did this, and he did this. And it's almost like this mishmash of ideas. That is not the way the gospel writers wrote. They ask the question, Jesus makes this comment, some of you, 
will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And then they go on to this next bit that we're looking at. The te- the, the eight days later after Jesus said this, he took them, Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. I want you to imagine what that moment was like. Three guys with Jesus, very close disciples to Jesus, Peter, John, and James. And they're taken away from the rest of the group, go up onto a mountain, uh, and while, again, we see the disciples are sleepy, they're tired, while they're just sort of drowsing, there's an incredible change. Jesus was praying. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Imagine it. Imagine what it must have been like. I don't know. What it, one would guess that maybe it was towards the end of the day. But whatever time of day it was, it was so bright. The change in Jesus, the garments that he was wearing, became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's as though radiating from Jesus was this incredible brightness. His face changed. And then, incredibly, appearing with him are two people talking with him who perhaps others had suggested Jesus was. Some had suggested that perhaps Jesus was Elijah in the previous few verses. Uh, And now we find that Elijah is with Jesus talking to him. It's the most incredible event. The disciples who are there are absolutely amazed. And they suggest that what they should do is build some shelters to celebrate, commemorate this particular moment where they see Jesus with these Uh, two other men talking, so that we can remember it and we can come back here in the future and remember what happened. Uh, The writer says they didn't know what they were saying. Luke's words are they didn't know what they were saying. In other words, it is so ridiculous to try to contain in this present what had occurred at that moment. What had gone on, what they had seen, is so beyond. To try to contain it with some shelters in this world is ludicrous. It is way bigger. It's just beyond words bigger than creating some shelters. It's just an astounding, amazing event. Amongst some of the um, commentators, perhaps those who are more critical, those who aren't quite so convinced of the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, there has been all sorts of speculation about what this uh, particular section is all about. Somebody has even said that uh, it is a misplaced ascension narrative. 
It's a misplaced ascension narrative. In other words, it's somebody who wrote a bit about the ascension in the wrong place, and it's been gathered up and put in this little section compiled with Luke's gospel in the wrong way. I can't come to terms with how that is even considered. And yet at the same time, there is something that 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 person is onto in a way. Because look at what the conversation is all about. Look at what the sentence... I mean, you sat there and you're thinking, what is happening? Here's Jesus. He's now brightly shining. And he's standing in front of me. I can hardly bear to look at him because his, his clothes are shining with this iridescent light. And then there are two others who are with him as well who also look glorious. There is a conversation going on. What do you think is the focus of that conversation? What might they be talking about? Well, they tell us the conversation in verse 31. They spoke about his departure. Isn't that amazing? They spoke about his departure. That was the conversation that was going on. Doesn't that tell you something? What I think it tells us this, that in some way what we see here is, uh, if you like, it's an hors d'oeuvre. It's a taster for what is to come. It's, it's connected, yes. It's giving us some ideas. But secondly, it's telling us this, that the idea of the ascension of Jesus, his departure, do you know what your word is used there in the Greek? His exodus. His exodus. We're going to be coming on to that in the future. If, you know, if that doesn't, if that should, if you've got any kind of experience of the Bible... Um, that will start ringing bells that that word is used by Luke when he says the description of his leaving is his exodus. For those of you who the Bible is new for, the idea of exodus is a central idea in the Bible. This idea of departure and being kind of taken out of. And here we have Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. I think that's great news because it tells me that Jesus' future in Jerusalem, the idea that he went to Jerusalem, the idea that he died, the idea that he was buried, the idea that he came back to life, the idea that he spent 40 days amongst his people, the idea that he went up onto a mountaintop, and the idea that he departed from that mountaintop is not, if you like, God reacting to events. It is God central in the activity of Jesus' mission in this world. It is what had been planned. In other words, when we read that later account in Acts, that's the conversation that is going on here. They're talking about his departure. I think it tells us three things. It tells us about his nature. It tells us about his mission. And it tells us about his grace. I'm going to go through those very quickly. Think about these three. Firstly, it tells us about his nature. It's beyond our comprehension, trying to come to terms with what it might look like, what it might be. But it does get right at the very core 
of what it means to exist as a human being. This little incident talks about what it means to be human. There was a report um, in one of the newspapers a few weeks ago. The headline was this, Global Warming Will End Life on Earth. And then in brackets it said, but don't panic, you've got 3.5 billion years left. (laughs) Good news? That is an incredibly modernist statement. The idea that our existence, who we are as people, is only defined by what we see, by what we touch, by what we can measure, by what science can assess. In other words, as soon as global warming in 3.5 billion years wipes us out, as soon as that happens, that's the end of human existence. Because human existence is all about what we can see and touch and feel. You know, that, to be honest, to be perfectly honest, there are masses and masses and masses of people who are beginning to say, that is such an old view. That's such an outdated view. The idea that the only essence of human beings is what we can touch, what we can measure, what science can tell us about. There are so many who are saying, actually, it's more. There is another dimension. There is more to us. We are not just this kind of construction of chemicals and electrical impulses, uh, kind of joined together and stacked together. There are so many people who are saying, no, there is more to human existence. There has to be. There is a dimension of us which is beyond. Which is beyond what we can see. Which somehow lives on. Does that start to ring bells with what you hear people saying these days? There has got to be something about us that continues. That we live on now. The postmodern view is that we can now, to be perfectly honest, we can define whatever we want. So the modernist view says it's all about what we can measure. And as once we're dead, we're dead. The postmodern view says, actually, you can define it for yourself. Jesus comes in here and he says, let me define it for you. Let me define it for you. The true essence of human existence is in some sense connected with Jesus' transfiguration, connected with Jesus' ascension. What is going on here? What is actually happening? It's about his nature. The nature of Jesus as a human being, get this, has the ability to enter this creation and leave this creation as he wishes. It's as though at that moment, as Peter, James and John were watching, there is some sort of window that opens up, that's the best description, failing description uh, I can use, some sort of curtain that is parted for a little, that gives visibility to an existence that Jesus always is. 
and he can enter that existence at will. He can enter the dimension of heaven. That's why when Jesus ascends on the mountain, he doesn't become a little dot in the sky as he goes up into some sort of stratospheric distance. He enters into another dimension, something which is beyond our understanding, and yet something wherein God dwells. What's that like? What is that place like? It's the kind of place that is so glorious, so outstandingly amazing, that Jesus' clothes shine. Why Moses? Why Moses and why Elijah? Why are they the two guys? I think it's this. Because in a sense, Moses has already been there. Listen to this. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of law in his hands. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses had already had a taste of that breaking into another dimension in this world. He'd already experienced it in part, and now he was experiencing it in full. And here's Jesus saying, I'm getting ready to come back. I'm getting ready to break into that other dimension. What about Elijah? Elisha and Elijah, Elisha is this young prodigy, Elijah is a prophet from the Old Testament, and Elijah takes off his cloak and symbolically puts it on Elisha, as if to say, the the job's yours now, it's over to you, you're now the prophet of God. Listen to what happens. As they were walking along and talking together, Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah saw, Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. What's going on? In both of those occasions and in the transfiguration occasion, these are witnesses that are encouraging us. Our human existence is not just everything that we can touch and see and measure and once we're dead, we're dead. But nor do we have the liberty to just walk away and define for ourselves just what it is. We can't define that I can, be, I can be kind of sucked up into the stars and shine next to Jupiter. That's not. We don't have that liberty because we have the witnesses that say human nature is about opening up ultimately some sort of connection with the indescribable glory of being in the presence of God. And Jesus does that for us, preparing us at the transfiguration, for what actually happens at the ascension. With two people who had experienced a bit of it on this earth. And they had the conversation, talking about his departure. 
What's, our exi- what's yours and my existence? What are you and I all about? Yes, we're about flesh and blood, but so is Jesus. But we're about more than that, aren't we? There is a spiritual dimension. There is supposed to be within us an eternal dimension that is made for the presence of God. And Jesus is showing to us that human existence is, is supposed to be that by opening little windows for us to say this is the true nature. Secondly, we see his mission. Because they were speaking about his departure, we can see. But we see specifically that Luke recounts which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I, I, the Gospels and the, and the determination of Jesus to fulfill in obedience the work of the Father is astounding. The absolute determination. He came into this world... He was connected in some sense with glory. We see that at the transfiguration. And yet, he reaches a point where he sets his face to Jerusalem, the Bible says. He's on his way. That is his goal. Because the way it was going to be accomplished for him to depart had something in the way, didn't it? Just stop for a moment because the transfiguration opens up a a little thought for us, doesn't it? What if Jesus, at the moment of the transfiguration, had continued on a few steps, figuratively speaking, and when Moses and Elijah had disappeared and gone back into that realm of glory, could Jesus have done that? Could Jesus have entered into that? I want to suggest, yes. He could have. But he didn't. Because his mission was to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he will do it. But he'll do it 40 days after after rising. He will, if you like, complete the work of the transfiguration. 40 days after he's risen. But he's got a job to do. Because the mission that he is on absolutely, determinedly has... The crucifixion, the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection between it. In other words, the ascension is the essential element. And these are the patterns, the pathways by which he returns to that essential element. You need to hear me very carefully because the glory of the cross is at the very center of the Bible. It is the thing which Christians hold on to as the absolute truth. 
and the essential element of our faith and hope. And yet, at the same time, it is a means to an end. It is not the absolute end itself. If Jesus had died on a cross and not been buried and risen again, the cross would be useless. If Jesus had died on a cross, risen again, lived in this earth, and died again naturally, the cross would be useless. The cross is essential and valuable and of worth because Jesus died, rose again, and ascended. We've got to get that in our brains. We've got to get that in our pathway of understanding The transfiguration tells us that Jesus is on a mission. So we've seen it's about his nature, it's about his mission, and it's about his grace. Why is it about his grace? How do the disciples finally respond? Well, they want to build these shelters And then they are overwhelmed. (laughs) Then they are really overwhelmed. If you read in the Old Testament, time and time again, you see the idea of a cloud. And they end up in a cloud. They end up in a cloud with a loud voice saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And it terrifies them. Because at that very moment, they realize two aspects of Jesus. Number one, they see his absolute glory. They see that he is absolutely, essentially connected with the living God. We we read it, and we read it from our New Testament perspective. I just want for a moment, I want us to read that verse from an an Old Testament perspective. I want you to imagine that you are a first century Jew. You've read the Old Testament again and again. It's been explained to you down through uh, through the years as you've grown up. One of the things that you have understood is that when God makes his presence with this world, it's an astounding event. When when the tabernacle is uh, initiated, God enters that by a cloud. When the temple is built, God enters it by a cloud. And now we find that little Peter, little James, little John end up in just that cloud. They, in other words, end up in the presence of God. Now, if you end up in the presence of God, according to the Old Testament, you die. And yet they don't. Because they're with Jesus. Because Jesus becomes their means of life. But we find that they enter into a cloud. They are overwhelmingly astounded by Jesus' glory. And yet at the same time, there is astounding grace. I think it's captured by verse 36. It's this overwhelming scene. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. All of that's going on. The cloud disappears. 
and they're stood with Jesus. He's with them. Because he's not gone. Because his mission is about grace. It's about the willingness, the determination, the absolute commitment of Jesus to redeem a people. Astounding grace. The fact that he could enter and exit creation at will and yet was willing to die. The fact that he could enter into the glory of his Father at will. Did he have to make a special appointment on the mountain? Did he have to connect in advance with Moses and Elijah to say, can you make sure that you're there? Jesus could enter at will and yet he was willing He was willing to stay in this world. When didn't this happen? When didn't Jesus enter into a place of astounding glory? He didn't enter into a place of astounding glory when he prayed to his Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from my lips. He was praying here, And he entered into glory. He was praying in Gethsemane. And he didn't enter into glory. Because he stayed in this world. To die for you. And to die for me. If we trust in him. That is astounding grace. Could Jesus... Could Jesus have left this earth with the work unfinished? He had the capability whereby we would say yes. But he had the character whereby we would say no. The unfailing, determined character of Jesus to redeem you and to redeem me.